The, the date is the 7th September 2009 and the place is Alt C 2009 at the University of Manchester. Uh, my name is Derek Morrison and here I am interviewing one of the keynote speakers at this year's conference, uh, Dr Michael Wesch, who is Assistant Professor of Cultural Anthropology at Kansas State University. Michael and his group gained a global audience via, via two widely viewed video productions on YouTube, uh, plus other channels, I think it's fair to say. Those were a vision of students today, and the machine is using us, or alternatively, the machine is us. To start with, Michael, that second video title, um, I, I've been intrigued as to whether there was any influences from uh, Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Massage. There. Yeah. So, so why, why that particular title in your, your, your second Yeah, well, I think McLuhan has been a big influence on me and on the work that we do at K-State. Um, one of his core ideas is that to the extent that you don't understand the effects of media, the media uses you, yes. whereas if you understand the effects, you can use it. But it takes a tremendous awareness to be able to do that, you know. And the first step in creating that awareness is to transform yourself from a consumer of media to a creator of media. Because when you become a creator, even while you're consuming, you're sort of seeing behind the scenes of how these things are created, and you're thinking about how you might be be able to use those things that you're seeing to create something new mm. and that just changes the whole approach to you know changes your whole approach to media and you know it goes so much deeper than that obviously I mean here we're just talking about content but one of uh, McLuhan's real insights was to see that media in a sense mediate our relationships with each other mm. so that even while we're talking there's a medium that's between you and I, and that's language. <laughs> in this case, it's English language. And when you change that, say even at the language level, you change the language, it changes the relationship to some extent because it changes what can be expressed easily and what can't be expressed easily. Now you change the technology of the communication and it changes things even more dramatically. If we get away from the spoken word and suddenly we decide to instead... Uh, speak through text messaging or something. Obviously, there are things that can be said more easily in face-to-face, -face, and there's actually some things that can be said more easily by texting. This is why my students are always breaking up with each other by texting rather than actually talking to each other. Well, I'm glad you mentioned your students because uh, I think I'm right in saying that the video productions were created by the Digital Ethnography Group, uh, yeah, the, which you lead at Kansas right. State. Can you explain to listeners, and I'm looking at general listeners here, what this group is? What is digital ethnography? Well, there's a couple of points to this. First off, um, it's almost a phantom group in the sense that really all it is is me and whoever my students happen to be at the time. Okay. <laughs> so, so we don't have like a consistent group structure or anything like that. Um, but digital ethnography is the study of digital worlds. And at the same time, it's also the use of digital tools to explain uh, or to reveal our findings. So there's like this two-sided piece of it. One is like the exploration of how people are connecting digitally and how that's changing culture. And the other side of that is using the digital tools themselves to express our findings in new ways. I'm, I'm very interested in this idea of students as researchers. Yeah. 
So there's, there's elements of a, an approach to pedagogy, it seems, in there itself. Can you expand a little bit more, you know, how, how do you actually go about it and is there a lesson there that perhaps we could all benefit from? Because the, the idea would be that, uh, apart from students being passive consumers, yeah. you know, the old sort of didactic le- lecture model, yeah. the idea you've actually got engaged students as researchers, and these are undergrads, these are right. not postgraduate students, I'm assuming. No, not at all, they're all undergrads. Okay. And, uh, and we keep pushing the envelope, and I'm always interested in seeing how far we can push that. And students always in my experience, have stepped up and done amazing work when you provide them... Well, when you when you help them discover something that's that they see as significant and relevant. And so you, you, you just, from the get-go... You know, actually, when my students come into class for the first day, I often tell them, this is not just a class, this is a research group, and you guys are collaborators with me on this research. And... I sort of point to a domain that I think is interesting and I explain why it's interesting and uh, but then ultimately it becomes a collaborative process of exactly what's interesting about this and what what can we contribute to this and um, I've now been doing this for years and even before the technology actually you know there was mm-hmm. it's you know before web 2.0 I should say and I think over the years we've gotten better and better at it to the point now where we almost have a formula for how to do it and and I think the first few weeks are really key. And the first, and the, the first step I already mentioned is you just from the get go you immediately tell them you know you're part of something. You're, this isn't time to just sit back and listen to what I have to say. You're going to be a part of a re- actual research project. And then the second step is something that we've had really good luck with is instead of the students going out and reading an introductory reading on the topic and then coming back and discussing it. Um, we instead decide on a topic and then all the students go out and find basically anything they can find on the topic. They summarize it and they do that in like two or three days. So they just, it's like a swarm. I just like imagine like the swarm of students going to the library Mm. or onto the web, finding all this material. They summarize it and then all the students read all the summaries that all the other students made. So at that point, we've collectively read a pretty good portion of the literature out there. And we've read all the summaries of all these different pieces of literature. So that by the end of the second week, we already collectively have a pretty good sense of what's been done and what research has been done already. And we can enter the conversation at that point. But why should students do this? Do they do it for the <laughs> love of it? Or is it is that assignment-driven? Is it part of the no. assessment? You know, what, what, is, what is the driver for your students? Well, it's always, I think, a really important to me sort of a test for myself is you know I I either do this I actually do this or at least think about doing it and that is pulling out pulling away the the point value right so if I if this were not an assignment would my students still be doing it Mm -hmm. and if the answer is no then I need to rethink it or I need to inspire them to (laughs) you know some more so that because it has to be internally driven if it's driven from an external mm-hmm. you know, source of, say, going for the grade, then it, in a sense, loses its meaning. And but is there an element of that in that, 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 that there is a, it is part of what they're expected to do to, to demonstrate progress both to themselves and to the institution? Well, so we actually, we have, that question is exactly one of the center points of the class itself, mm-hmm. you know, and so we're constantly asking that question together and thinking about how we can use the points, and one of the things I've started doing 
is uh, the students will actually distribute points to each other. They'll give it, they'll give assignments to each other. So collectively, this works really well in classes, say 15 and under. If you have 15 students or less, I've had I've not had luck with this in bigger classes. So just a word of warning <laughs> to anybody out there listening. Um, but with 15 or less, this has worked really well. And that's where students collectively have this sense of like, this is the project that needs to get done. And given that this needs to get done, there's there's tasks, you know, A through Z that need to get done as part of that. And students will actually break that up and, and sort of in a very informal but powerful way because they know each student gets to know all the other students. They get to know like, okay, the, this student over here has this strength, so let's let them do X. And this student over here has this strength, let's let, let them do Y. And collectively they get it all done and they can actually assign point values to each other. Um, it hasn't been as effective in larger classes and I'm not sure how to make it work yet. But it has something to do with the accountability. I think that when there's only 15 students, it's clear that the professor is always just one step removed from you. Okay. <laughs> but when you get over that number, uh, some students can sort of create their own little uh, groups that are gaming the system, you might say. So there's always this fear that students will will take advantage of your you know, innovations and find a way to game the system. Okay. Know? Well, that, that leads me on to my, my, my next point, is that there's no doubt about it, is the work of a digital ethnography group, and particularly the, the, the very clever way you've actually done that. You, you've basically got a global audience, yeah. basically what you're actually doing. So while you've caught this, this sort of, uh, this, this attention, one of the questions that's been floating around in my, my head is, how big an impact has this actually had on Kansas State University more generally? <laughs> in other words, yeah. it, it's just very easy in the higher education sector that you're recognised out there. Right more than one's recognized internally. Yeah. What, what, have you had any impact in Kansas State among other colleagues in other disciplines, say? Or? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, um, you know, hope, hopefully it'll even get moving even more. But, you know, I'm, I've been part of, or I've been the coordinator of a program there called the Peer Review of Teaching Program. Yes. And that's where we take, like, 18 top faculty and uh, we, the faculty members actually go visit each other's classes, and they sort of peer evaluate each other on their teaching from all, at all levels, not just the in the classroom part, but the assessment part and the mm-hmm. building the syllabus and all that. And we meet, you know, once a month and sometimes more often than that. And that's been a platform in a way to to spread some of these ideas in a very, but it's a very tight knit group of you know eighteen faculty. Um, more broadly, the university has always, they've been very supportive and certainly as they've highlighted my work frequently, mm-hmm. like on the on the homepage of the university and so on. So I think a lot of people are aware of my work and I've, I have had several faculty stop in my classes to see how it works and, and so on. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, you know, become a movement by any means. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. I think, Another thing I did notice, going back to the, the original production of A Vision of Students Today, there appeared a revisionist repurposing of this, mm-hmm. um, which 
it, it, it reworked it because there seemed to be a criticism that it, it was conveying, yeah, sure, it was a vision of students today, but this was a, a fundamentally a white middle class mm. view um, was presented. Do you feel that criticism was fair? And if so, yeah, how did you mollify your. No, I think it's t- totally fair. And I. Um, the only thing that's funny about it was that within the production of the thing, we were very we were very aware of that and we actually thought that we had addressed it in a certain way mm-hmm. um, uh, the one obviously it's it's not fair in the sense that I mean the students are who they are we're in the middle of Kansas and mm-hmm. and uh, as a university we're working hard to create more diversity on mm-hmm. our campus but the real- reality is that I mean what you saw in that classroom is exactly what you have yes, you know yes. And and I, I think the other thing is I think people this is our mistake um, but when when we called it a vision of students today we really a the word a was actually very important to us and we meant it to be sort of the humble well, lowercase yes, a right yes, this is yes. a vision it's yes. not the vision yes. but it's a vision and but I think uh, I know Mark Marino who created that and we're good friends but mm-hmm. he you know he was more focused on. Uh, I think that the fact that students wasn't qualified in any way. It didn't say a vision of white middle class students today yeah. or anything like that. Um, but we were aware of it. And in fact, um, we even had on tape, you know, we had, I think, uh, there were maybe about five African Americans in the class at the mm-hmm. time out, out of 200. And that's roughly what we have at K State, uh, percentage wise. And one of them, you know, the filming was very fluid and students could uh, raise a sign at, yes. at any time. And one student rose a sign, put up a sign that said, I'm more than just a face. Mm-hmm. Thinking about how, like, you know, she, nobody knows her name, like the student, you know, the teachers don't know her name, this kind of thing. And at that point, uh, one of my other students, an African-American girl, held up a sign that said, I'm more than just my race. It was a very powerful thing, yeah. and uh, we discussed it in the class, and and it, you know, I don't know if it was the right move or not. We decided to leave that out, along with, you know, seventy-five minutes of other filming. You know, course, yeah. As you know, it's only five Editing minutes long. <laughs> um, we left it out, and not because we didn't think it was important, but because we thought it was too important. And we had a thought of doing another video altogether. Actually, some of that other video is mixed in there. So there's that bit where it says, like, the stuff where it says things like, um, I make, uh, or like a billion people on the planet make less than a dollar a day and those mm-hmm. types of things. We were thinking about addressing diversity and the digital divide and all those types of things. But uh, it didn't seem like the right, ultimately I don't think it seemed like the right format. You know, the holding up the placards, it didn't seem like the right format. Okay. So We're actually working on another project right now that I think will address those issues, and it's tentatively called a a and then in parentheses more complete vision of students <laughs> today. And what it is is actually all the students in that class. It's the same classroom, uh, so two hundred actually it's four hundred students now are all becoming. They're working with me on a documentary film on college life, and that's our latest project. Is 
and, we, and that's why it's called a, a more complete vision of students today because all the students are working all semester on an ethnography of college life and they're going to film it and then we're going to edit it and see what happens. Something we perhaps could learn from we'll think over here. Um, there's a two parts to this, this question. We're getting near the end now, but what did you mean by the double title of the machine is using... Oh, the machine is us, and the machine is using us? And the follow-on from that is that keeping in mind that even the flag bearer for Web2, i.e. Wikipedia, appears to be increasingly dependent on a trusted mm. subset of its users, <laughs> who are de facto editors now, are you still optimistic about the future of open user participation? The Web 2 model seems yeah. to be that is the ideal. Right. But Wikipedia was, it was put forward of the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the leading case yeah. for um, this, this open egalitarian model. Right. Well, so, I mean, your first question, I, I think I addressed it a little bit earlier. It was kind of based on this idea from Marshall McLuhan. It's simply that, well, it goes a little deeper than I mentioned earlier, but that on the one hand, the machine is using us, sort of literally. I mean, if you think about, part of that comes from an article from by Kevin Kelly. Like he's the one who talks about the machine, and his vision of the machine is actually the first, what he thinks will be the first artificial intelligence. Because what you have in the web is essentially a machine that's always on, that's constantly learning from us, mm-hmm. and. He says, I mean, in a sense, this is the first AI, whether you think of that as artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. Mm. One or the other, it's still a very powerful entity. Mm. <laughs> and and in one sense, it's using us to learn, right? On the other hand, it really is us. In a way, it's like the great mirror of us. It's like the... It's the... It's the collected art, artifacts of all of our collective actions, <laughs> you know, over time. And... Uh, finally, it's it's also um, there's this sense that it it may use us in this in the sense that we are it may transform us in ways that we are unaware. Which brings me to my final point. Yeah. Arguably, some might actually disagree with this, but there's a, a growing realization in academia that the traditional scholarly behaviours of both faculty and students are being changed. Um, it's been changed by the, the very information communication technologies which, we, which excites us. Um, things that we can now do easily, like mm-hmm. limiting our need to actually physically visit libraries and things. So, however, there's also a growing anxiety, and it's been expressed by a couple of reports in the UK and I'm sure elsewhere, mm-hmm. Um, for example, the 2009 Melvin Committee of Inquiry into the Changing Learning Experience was one. And also in 2008, um, there was a cyber study by the UCL team in the UK into information behaviour research of the, the, the future, which was the risk is that we're all, both faculty and students, have been turned into browsers. Mm-hmm. We're grazers, we're, yeah. we're covering broad territory, we're losing analysis and synthesis and deepness. What is your view, which follows on from the machine is us, or right. the machine is using us? Yeah, well that's exactly the point, right? That if we're not aware of, the, of these possibilities, that we do end up changing in ways that we don't intend and don't want to have happen. So that's, that's a great example. Um, 
there that debate in the U.S. was sort of played out in an interesting way uh, between Nick Carr and then a few other people came in. But you, do you remember Nick Carr's article? Mm-hmm. You, yes, so uh, the title there was "Is Google Is Google Making Us Stupid?" Yes. Right? Very provocative and. Uh, Kevin Kelly responded with a title that said, Will we let Google make us smarter? <laughs> and the idea was that, I mean, Kevin Kelly's response was that, okay, so maybe that's the case. I mean, um, and there's, you know, Carr and others have uh, looked at research, like from Marianne Wolf and some others, who suggest that maybe it is true. Um, he's suggesting that, you know, Kevin Kelly gives the example of somebody armed with Google, with Google representing the entire web in this case. Somebody armed with that versus somebody not armed with that is much smarter, right? And and it only gets uh, more profound as the machines that are helping us think become more and more embedded in our lives. And here we're talking like when you when you're talking with Kevin Kelly, then you're talking about when when we're talking embedded in our lives, we mean literally yes, <laughs> embedded. Yes, you know, yes, eventually, yes. they're like embedded in our you know in our brain and so on. Um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Uh, I think was it Dyson who had that great quote? Is he said something like, "Is the cost of machines that think humans that don't." You know, and it's a, such a compelling idea. Uh, I, I would like, you know, I think I don't have the answer right now, but I'll just announce that <laughs> that, that I would I would like to formulate the the uh, the response to that, but I don't actually have it right now. But I think that there must be. I think I think there's interesting counter arguments to pursue, and I, I I'd have to think out loud to really come up with them right now, but. Um. Well, well, perhaps we'll leave it at that point. We'll leave that question hanging in, hanging in the air. Um, you're giving the keynote tomorrow morning, the opening keynote. In one sentence, can you give us one key message in advance mm. that you're going to address in the keynote? <laughs> this will be going out after the keynote. <laughs> yeah. so well, I'll try. You know, believe it or not, I'm... I was actually sitting it in my hotel room all afternoon trying to wrestle between two presentations. I've actually created two presentations that I've never given before. You know, two brand new ones. <laughs> and I'm wrestling between the two. So I'll say what it it's either going to be <laughs> about about uh, really probing into the changes, the sort of like hidden changes that we've been talking about. Um but more like on a cultural level, like how it's changing our students and us, faculty, in terms of how we even think about ourselves. Like so, pretty deep stuff, philosophical type stuff, and sort of, um, but within the context of learning and what it means to learn and so on. And then the other one, the other way is I, I was going to be a little bit more practical and less philosophical, and that route is to just demonstrate uh, how I run a class these days, like how I ran my class this last semester. So those are the two I'm weighing. So in the one sense, actually, it's interesting, the one, the philosophical one is the results of the research my class did. 
and the the practical one is how we did it. In one hour, I can't do both, <laughs> so so I'm stuck with one or the other. But that's that's where I'm going. I think that one of the key messages that I'm really trying to get across is just how important it is to create a sense of purpose with our students, and that once you create that, then the technology just almost comes naturally. I mean, you can help your students go toward it, or they may gravitate toward it um, in different ways, And but it's always with this purpose in mind. And it's so much better to do that than to start with a platform and think like, oh, I've got the best platform, it's going to make this great class. It, it, that's not the key, actually. The key is creating a sense of purpose and helping your students see the relevance and importance of what you're doing. And once they have that down, you know, they become collaborators with you in creating the class and and including bringing in the technology and that's the way to go about it. Well I think that's a a fantastic message to end on so I'm Derek Morrison and I've been speaking to Michael Resch, Assistant Professor of Kansas State University. Thank you Michael and thank you all for your attention. Thank you. (laughs)